Welcome to episode 159. Today, we look at how to center the voices of Latinx and minoritized students. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. I'd like to start the podcast by sharing an excerpt about En Comunidad from the Heinemann website. En Comunidad brings bilingual Latinx students' perspectives to the center of our classrooms. Its culturally and linguistically sustaining lessons begin with a study of language practices in students' lives and texts, helping both children and teachers think about their ideas on language. These lessons then lay out a path for students and community storytelling, a critical analysis of historical narratives impacting current realities, ways to develop a social justice stance, and the use of poetry in sustaining the community. As I hosted the podcast, I realized that though this is really about Latinx students, the principles of honoring students' practices and the communities can be applied to any group of students. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited to have Dr. Carla Espana y Dr. Luis Yadira Herrera on the podcast to talk about their book, En Comunidad, Lessons for Centering the Voices and Experiences of Bilingual Latinx Students from Heinemann Books. Dr. España, Dr. Herrera, welcome. Bienvenido al podcast. Gracias. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much, Sam. Can you start us off with telling us about um, how you spend your days and where you spend your days now? <laughs> Ooh, I'll, um, I'll start with, yes. my life has changed drastically. I have a toddler, so my, my days have changed, like my life has changed. Um, but I am currently the assistant professor of bilingual education and Puerto Rican, Latinx, and Latin American studies at Brooklyn College in the City University of New York. So some days I will spend um, a lot of time preparing for my classes, I teach, I spend time um, in my meetings and I'll have now my, my committees I'm a part of. And also uh, because I'm a mom and my toddler just started school, I'm spending a lot of time in New York City commuting as you hear in the background, our, our commuting you know, background soundtrack. Um, so I spend a lot of time now commuting and navigating the, the, that calendar that is being a parent and getting a child to school. So that's new to me. Um, and other than that, I love spending time with my family. We're in an intergenerational home. And so we spend uh, with my parents a lot of storytelling in Spanish, stories from Chile, where we're from. And my um, husband's family is from Colombia. So uh, we have a lot of those moments together. Uh, so those are some of my days, a little bit of teaching, 
we do some writing, eventually have two research studies for the spring. Um, and a lot of days I spend here on uh, the Zoom oh, with Luz and we're writing together. And so a lot of writing is happening in presentations. Mm. Pero Luz, does that sound, what, what is it like for you? <laughs> yeah, so for me, I mean, a lot of the same, right? Of course, I'm an assistant professor of bilingual education at California State University Channel Islands, and I live in Los Angeles. Um, so during the week, I spend time planning for my classes, you know, of course, committee meetings, um, teaching, uh, and I'm a mother as well. My son is in third grade, Rami. And so there's about two hours of my life every single day, you know, dedicated to school drop off and pick up pretty much. Uh, but he's uh, he goes to a wonderful bilingual school and I'm really happy that um, that he's there. Um, other than that, I, you know, I spend time with my family. My family, they're all in L.A. Um, and they live five, seven minute drive away from here. So I spend a lot of time with them or playing tennis. Um, that's what I do for fun. Of course, hanging out with my friends or, um, you know, going out, having some fun, too. You both talked about raising your children in a bilingual family, in a generational family. So what does your children's room look like, according to books? I can start and Carla was you know, telling you a little bit about that off, off camera. But uh, so Remy, he is, his dad is Nigerian and obviously I'm not obviously, but I'm Mexican. And so we speak uh, Spanish and English at home. Uh, he is also learning Yoruba uh, on Zoom with teachers from Nigeria actually on the weekends. And so he's becoming trilingual. But um, his books, he's got a lot of picture books, and now he's growing his library of, like Arla mentioned, the early readers and the chapter books that we read together still. Um, and so he's got a lot to choose from. So thankfully, like, I don't think he'll probably, in a very long time, he won't run out of anything to read for a very long time, thankfully. I'm so fortunate to have, you know, to be able to provide all of all of what I can provide for my for my child because well number one of course you know I have so many resources as a bilingual educator but also publishers have census books and uh, they also make their way to Remy's library right but of course I've invested over the years and gifts and all of that so lots of books uh, lots of um, art like affirming messages there's a pillow in his in his bed that says you matter and um, I just I, for me it's really important to support his bilingual. Uh, biracial, bi black biracial identity. And Luz, is that the You Matter from the uh, Christian Robinson collection? Yes, the Christian Robinson collection. Shout out. We love that collection. Christian Robinson is one of our favorite illustrators, children's book illustrators. So we have all, all of Christian Robinson's books and also trying to get all the other products. So I do remember that pillow. It's so beautiful. <laughs> I hope to get, those are my goals. So Luz's um, uh, child's uh, room are my my goals for the future my child is turning three soon so my so that room we have um set up like a little two displays for books and one is just uh, on the lower like more her height so she can grab and go um for now there's just a lot of picture books there there's a basket with board books the little libros that are the bilingual books um are are in the basket because they're just easy to flip through. Um, I love collecting some of the books um, by Julie Flett. And so I love having indigenous representation too and different languages. So I have some books too that are by other authors and illustrators um, that are in Plains Cree and English. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Tracy Sorrell's books in on Cherokee and English. And I think um, that's also important. So not only that I have books in Spanish and English, but I also want my child to grow up to see that there are so many other languages too. Um, but for now, anything that has animals, uh, trucks, <laughs> any vehicles, those are those are my child's favorites. Any <laughs> vehicles and animal uh, books are are right now trending in our house. The reason I asked for that question, there wasn't a question that I wrote to you because it just seemed quite natural to ask. The reason is because um, we have to be intentional about raising our children in bilingual families. And I, uh, my family wasn't intentional as, as both you are, so we didn't read Vietnamese books. And so I can speak Vietnamese and I can hear Vietnamese and I can barely read some Vietnamese words, but your children are having such different experiences because of your research that you understand that like in, intentionality has to be the center of bilingual families. And how do we do that? We read with them. We talk to them in a dif- different languages and we have them translate language between and filling from their, filling their rooms and their experiences from a young age with books, uh, with lots of representation, representation and in different languages. Yeah, so beautiful. And I love that um, we listen a lot to the Canticos, um, on Nick Jr. Canticos that are Spanish English songs. Um, there's these little pochitos that they cantan in Espanol. Y después al final de la canción dice, otra vez, again in English. And so the same song you have in the Spanish verse and you have in English. Um, so we'll be walking in the street with my child and we're singing a song in Spanish. And the next thing you know, she says, again, and I got to sing it in English. So... <laughs> I, my my um, song list has expanded in the last uh, three years with this child. <laughs> Can you please share with us a story about teaching that has influenced your practice to this day? I can start. Yeah. Because I have a visual representation of that story. Um, sitting on my desk every day, I see it when I, when I sit to write and, and do my work. Um, when I was a first-year teacher, uh, I was following the script of what I um, was told, you know, would be great lessons for the first few days. And I had the students um, a second day of school, the day before I had assigned homework uh, to bring a special object. And this is in a sixth grade bilingual classroom. Uh, Most of my students were from Dominican Republic some were from Mexico, but for the most part in the neighborhood I was at, it was mostly uh, those from Dominican Republic. And I asked them, I gave them options, bring something that's a special object or a picture that's meaningful to you so you can write a story about the people or that moment that that picture um, is reminding you of or that the object reminds you of something special. So the next day I'm, I'm getting ready to teach and this is like I'm a first year teacher and all the kids are excited. Almost everybody has pictures and they're all talking about their pictures. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is great. And then I hear a lot of chatter in one group and I go up to this group and I see the student who I had heard that was like going to be like, going to give me a little trouble because the student who was very, you know, wanted to be funny. And I was like, oh, here we go. So I had these assumptions about this kid already, right? I came with a narrative about this child. And they have this, everyone's talking about pictures around them, but they're all talking to him and he doesn't have a picture. And I said, where's your picture? Where's your picture? Everyone has a picture. Where's your picture? And he said, no, um, eh, pro, eh, profe, profe, or oh, Miss España, profe, eh, you said we can bring, you know, an object or a picture. And this is my object. And I said, well, 
you know, they're just laughing. Are you, are you taking this seriously? Like, and I got all judgmental. It was a rock. And he tells me, well, it's a rock from the Dominican Republic. And I brought it because it reminds me of, I used to go to the river with my cousins and play and here in New York city, moving here, I haven't had my family around and I don't go out much to play. Oh, and already inside, like, I just want to cry. <laughs> so big lesson learned everyone. And so everyone was very excited because they had connections to, they also were going to the river in Dominican Republic to play. And there was this innocence of like childhood of play and the importance of family and having those moments together. And um, in my busyness of like, as a teacher trying to check the boxes and having these assumptions about that child already and trying to get through my lesson, um, I was missing that. And then um, that student gave me that rock. They wrote about the river. That was their narrative moment. Um, they wrote about, I got to know more about their family to the new public, how they live in New York city now. And I've had that rock for years. So that was 2007. <laughs> he gave it to me at the end of the narrative unit and, um, and I have it on my desk. So that I, that's a lesson to learn for my teaching life. Um, check your assumptions, listen to the children. That's why the book I wrote with Luce is really important on like, what are the lessons we've learned from bilingual and multilingual ch children um, and always be open to having to shift your practice because children will teach you things. So that story is a physical manifestation of your subtitle, which is about like lessons for centering voices, right, of kids. And so we, if we're centering kids, we have to listen to them. And it's about developing relationships with kids. So I think for me, um, the, the vision or the visual or the image that comes up is um, kind of my early on um, what led me to this career. And it was, I was, I didn't set out to be a teacher. I was going to, I majored in international development studies and Portuguese because I wanted to work for like the UN and work for like an NGO or something like that, you know? Um, and then I joined the student organization called Conciencia Libre or Free Conscience. And we, we did a, a few things. There were groups of like there was a subgroup that worked with um working for uh getting workers on campus unionized so that's what they did and then our group the one that i joined we used to go to these job centers in, around la where we would teach um spanish literacy and esl to immigrant day laborers and so, you know, after Friday night, we like go out, go all out, you know, as college students. And then Saturday night, 8 a.m., we were up and at a job center teaching English or Spanish literacy uh, while mostly men, they were every single one of them were men. They were waiting for jobs. You know, they instead of like maybe hanging out in a hardware like store department, you know, hardware store looking for work or waiting for work. There were these job centers um, and these job centers kind of made sure that they got a fair daily wage or hourly wage. And while they were waiting for work, they would come to us and we would bring them lunch and we would bring them snacks and they'd like sit in and, you know, we teach them. And the things that we used to teach them were like um, articles, newspapers, because I that's where I was at first introduced to the Paulo Freire method of popular education. And so we were like, okay, um, you know, G is not for, I don't know, giraffe, G is for a globalization, you know what I mean? Like things like that. 
And I think that's when I, that's when it, when it sparked for me, that's when it sparked for me. Like, this is, this is my path. This is my path. I want, I need to be in education. I need to be a teacher. And that's why I started my career as an ESL teacher. And I thought about like, you know, it just made everything real for me in terms of like the reasons why people move from one country to another, right? Like my own family was, of course, we're immigrants, but, um, but seeing that as a college student in a pretty privileged position at that point, right, was just life changing. And it just, for me, revealed the power of education and also a meaningful education that's contextualized, right, and connected to like people's life experiences. So that's, that's what comes up for me. So everything has a reason, like what you volunteered for that and it has led you to here. So, and we're grateful that your paths, both of your paths have led you to here where we can learn from your from your book. Speaking of your book, let's talk more specifically about it. What was the seed for this book? Every book has a seed. What was the seed for En Comunidad? Ophelia was the seed. <laughs> Carla, do you want to get us started on that? The week that uh, Luz and I defended our dissertations, we were at the Graduate Center in New York City, and it was where we had spent uh, seven years of our life uh, in reading, writing, research um, in this field of, uh, in our, the, the program was uh, urban education, but we were both specializing in bilingual education. And our advisor was Ofelia Garcia, the great Ofelia Garcia in our field. And so Ofelia um, had read <laughs> our work like for seven years and all our courses and our dissertations. So the week that we both defended, um, we went out for lunch, all three of us, to celebrate. And this was in April in 2017. And at that lunch, Ophelia Garcia said, you should write together. And at that point, we've just been, anyone who's in a graduate program, so all of you listeners and those who are viewing, know that you were just trying to get over, like finish your day and move on and make it through the day and go to the next day. Um, so it's rare that you have time to connect with others and think beyond your like graduation or program or dissertation, you're just like, I need to finish. Like, how can I get to the finish line? Cause I'm about to pass out. At least that was my experience every day. <laughs> I felt like I'm gonna pass. <laughs> um, and so I, up to that point, we hadn't thought about that together. And so our professor advisor, Fania Garcia was the seed of, of the start of the book. And that summer we spent time together writing, drafting the, the table of contents. Um, and by that fall I had like the chapter one and two. So we were ready. We were ready to put, put our experiences and research together and get it out there. Now, if you could have a, a, a gardener who planted the first seed, now that would be the gardener, Ophelia Garcia, <laughs> to, to yeah. inspire you to do that. And, so, uh, and look at how that seed has grown into your book. Let's talk about it actually more specifically. Um, let's talk about chapter one, which is about centering the voices and experiences of bilingual Latinx. What did you mean by that title and that chapter? Oh, man, that's a really long title. I often have to have to go back and read it to make sure I'm reading all of it. But uh, <laughs> well, uh, we we didn't come up with the title right. The the title wasn't finalized until the work was done. Um, we had so many different sort of variations of it. And um, that's what the publisher finally was able to like get on board with. Um, I mean, they were totally supportive throughout the way, along the way. Um, but we just thought about like the essence of the book, like who is this about or who is this for, you know, and, and our purpose, right, is for, is for, is for kids. And so 
the the focus has to be about how to amplify you know their experiences you know their voices um language and cultural practices um and all of what we do has to facilitate around around that effort and i, I say that also to add thanks for for thinking about that process um for chapter one specifically um you know when you're asked when you go for a teaching job you're asked for a teaching philosophy or you're in a grad program to become a teacher and you're asked to like draft a teaching philosophy as an assignment for your grade for a class. Um, that's what chapter one was, us processing what's the foundation of our teaching and what do we call it? Like if we had to narrow down the, the top four or five most important things um, foundational in our teaching of bilingual, multilingual children, um, what would they be? And so we went through, like we had to think back on, on our lessons, on our unit planning curriculum that we've used, how we've modified curriculum, the results and findings of our, both of our uh, first studies, our dissertation research. And that's when we said, we, we want to talk about these principles, right? The critical bilingual literacies um, and those principles in chapter one that were guiding our teaching. So under in chapter one, you'll find that for us, at the core is this self-reflection on language ideologies and that it's ongoing. No matter where you are, whether you're in graduate school to become a teacher or you've been teaching for 10, 15 years, we're constantly in this self-reflection on what we think about language and language learning and it doesn't stop. Um, there also has to exist this unlearning because so many of the students we've taught in our um, respective college uh, teacher ed programs or those I'm teaching now in undergrad courses come with so much shame of languages that have been um, part of language minoritized communities. Um, so whether it's Spanish or Arabic, right? Um, students have, have this legacy that's come from a lot of generations of we need to let go so we can just bring on English in this a very assimilationist perspective. And that's been uh, ingrained because of schooling and outside media representation too, right? So that's the second point that we talk about in chapter one. It's really important to unlearn that. And then the, uh, the third one is make sure that in this critical bilingual literacies approach, we're always um, thinking about language in relation to power. I don't care if, you know, if I'm going to teach second graders and I'm using a picture book and how am I making sure I don't forget that or I'm teaching teachers in a workshop, right? Um, and then the final one is celebration and joy. And we want to, to celebrate the language practices that our students are bringing, right? And so in my research study, the teacher had years and years of a journey to celebrate, because at first she was not celebrating the language practices of mostly Dominican and Mexican community. Um, she thought they weren't as good enough as other types of Spanish that um, was celebrated. So it took years for that teacher to say, no, I need to celebrate these and these are valid. Uh, Luis, did you want to add something? Um, so I just, no, I think really, Carla really nailed it. I mean, I, I do want to just add like what a part of that, part of that framework also guides what, how we guide our, our uh, future teachers in thinking about teaching and learning specifically through the three T's, what we call the three T's, right? So topics, text, and translanguaging, right? Which helps us have like a really sort of clear vision about how we want to move um, forward in our instruction. And it's been really helpful to have that framework um, with, you know, and sharing these with schools and districts and other educators um, everywhere, 
because it really is about being so intentional about the topics, right? Thinking about, well, yes, we have to be able to teach um, in a way that honors children's language practices, but we also have to be really intentional about the topics. Like, what is it that we're teaching, the content itself, right? Like, how can we be really thoughtful about thinking of teaching of what what matters, right? Like, what is what are the communities grappling with? How can we bring that into a classroom space to, you know, so that children can see uh, a way to process these together. Um, and of course, that's the free, the first T, right? The topics. And then the text is, is centered around children, the use of children's literature, but also multimodal texts, right? Which of course, there's so much that we can, so many mediums, so, so many ways that we can learn about something uh, in a way that's really meaningful through podcasts, right? Through, through images and videos, and of course, children's books. And how can these... Um, sustain children's uh, ideas about who they are about on their language practices and of course uh, the last t is translanguaging yeah it just makes it so easy for us to remember how to put your principles that we talked about earlier that carla talked about into practice with text sorry topics text and translanguaging uh, as you were talking about uh topic and 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 like bringing in the topics that communities are grappling with. I can see the roots of that from your work with day laborers and how instead of just like G is for giraffe, like G is for a globalization, right? <laughs> Let's move to chapter th uh, two, actually, which is about examining language practices and identities. Actually, before I go there, I wanna actually pause because I can hear I want to ask a question that's not on the, on the list of questions, but why do we want children to be bilingual and not just, oh, wait, they're in America, they should speak English? Oh, man. <laughs> well, I mean, of course, bilingualism, multilingualism is the norm, right, globally. Um, and it's important for us to be bilingual, multilingual, um, for a variety of reasons, of course, it does help connect you to like your your roots, right? For me, that's what it's done. I've been able to um, have this really close relationship with my family back home, and we go every year. So for me, uh, growing up, I knew the importance of my bilingualism, right? Because I wanted to make sure to connect with my cousins who were close to my age versus my little brothers who were so far in age. So I didn't really have that sibling relationship right because they were so like they were we were I was older than, than them um and so having my best friends and my cousins that was like such a great way to keep in touch with them we would write to each other we would speak on the phone um and of course just being around being able to travel back and forth which is you know such an important thing that I was that I was able to do growing up that was for me so important to just keep rooted um, but also just in general, I mean, I think about the ways that we have increased access to everything, right? From the music to the art, to just people, to making connections across cultures. I mean, why wouldn't you choose to be? Carla, do you want to add anything? What would you like to add? Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that, that word connection. Um, I'm thinking back to my experience like I, I said earlier, I was in a bilingual setting with mostly um, speakers from the Caribbean and Mexico and um, 
some from South America. Uh, and so for them, I can see like how the connection and rootedness that Luz is talking about is exactly like, yes. And even in my research, one of the um, lines in an interview, a sixth grader said um, that they were writing in Spanish and English because they wanted to help their parent with a citizenship exam in the U.S. when they came from the Dominican Republic, or they had phone calls with a parent who was still in Dominican Republic while the child was in New York, and they would be helping their parent learn English. So there's also that like students learning for this other purpose of like helping others. Um, so I love that. But I'm also thinking about another context for students who are, um, I was at a predominantly white institution for a year teaching English, um, but the students were, most of them were bilingual, multilingual because they grew up, I, there were students who were speaking like different languages growing up. Um, and so I had a lot of wonderful conversations with um, some of the Spanish teachers in the school and how learning a language or teaching Spanish in that type of setting for students that Spanish wasn't a, a language from their home or their, their culture, I mean, it opened up the doors to learn about another culture and ways of being. And so for me, another reason that bilingualism and multilingualism is so beautiful is that it just makes you a more conscious and um, kind human being to be able to empathize with people because you are learning not only because um, not only language as something on a page because language isn't static language is constantly evolving and language is contextual and connected to people so I'm happy to have had as a teacher those experiences in very different settings to see how bilingualism and multilingualism um, works there so I'm hearing you you both talk to this common uh, quote where they say the limits of my world is the limits of my language Right. And so when we don't support bilingualism, students have a connection to one world, but they lose a connection to others. And that's often the language in which it's connected to their heritage and their community. Let's move to chapter two again. Let's talk about uh, examining language practices and identities. Oh, chapter two was so fun. I remember. Uh... So chapter two is where we start. So chapters two through six in the book are um, sequences of lessons. And in the chapter, in chapter two, we start with the first sequence of lessons that helps um, teachers and students. So this is something teachers can engage in with students or on their own in teacher study groups, kind of unpack their own language ideologies. And so we use um, two key texts. We use Gloria Saldua's um, excerpt from Borderlands, uh, La Frontera, the New Mestiza Memoir. And it's just a short excerpt from the chapter, How to Tame a Wild Tongue. And also um, a video clip, because we like our multimodal work, of um, the artist Miguel, who is a Black Mexican artist who travels in this video series um, to uh, Michoacan, had never been um, to Mexico, to Michoacan, to, to Michoacan to see um, family there. And so we, we you use that video, we use that text from the memoir of Gloria Saldua to talk about issues of language and identity. And what does it mean when the artist says, people don't view me as like a Mexican artist, they view me as um, a, a black artist. Um, so what does it mean to be black Mexican uh, Spanish speaker and, and why people are so limited in their view of um, that type of identity, right? And, and language speaking. Uh, so that's what chapter two is about, taking teachers and students through a sequence of lessons that helps them. Um, we, we, we love the protocol in um, Kate Roberts and Chris Lehman's book, um, Energize, uh, no, sorry, that was Chris's book. Um, this, the Kate Roberts and Chris's book, um, Falling in Love with Close Reading. So they have, I know it's, it's a 
you know, corny, cheesy title. I love it. It's catchy. It'll stay with you. So I can't forget it. I love it. Uh, but in this book, they have a protocol for analyzing text that takes you through different steps of go- looking at patterns in text. When you go in with a lens, you have kids focus on a word choice, focus on something um, when they go back to a text. So we love that protocol because it's so easy to follow. We added onto it in our book, we added um, the steps of having students think about language. So it's including metalinguistic awareness in the teaching. So creating space for students to say, um, what did they think about um, the language practices that were used there? Or what do they think about the line in that video about language and identity? And then finally, the final step we have there is, um, what does this mean for us? So us being the classroom or us being the school. So in our school, are we judging people because they are black and Mexican or we don't see them as um, full human beings because of their blackness? Is there anti-blackness in our, in, in anti-blackness in our community? Um, so for us, it was really important to start the book off with that tone and say, we can have these conversations with students. Here's a protocol we can follow to help us develop those ideas. Oh man, I just think about like the the times that we've done, you know, sort of this exercise, specifically like looking at excerpts from books and thinking about like how people's um, experiences sort of come through the text, right? I mean, we, in workshops we've done, uh, we've shown passages from Tahinisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me. We've seen uh, passages about using that same sort of protocol or idea, right? Uh, passages from Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson to really think about like what have been, what has the schooling experience been for authors, even people who are so successful like this, right? And what are some ways that we can um, change school to have, you know, sort of change that experience, turn that experience around because um, they, they talk about these painful memories that they have about schooling, right? And and what schooling did to them, um, unfortunately. And for us, it's really important to kind of think about those, the ways that this still continues today, right? Schooling can cause harm to children. Um, and so this is one of the, our focus, like one of our goals, I think, for our work is for us to become that critical educator or try to nurture the criticality, right? Like Oli Muhammad does in their work about how to how to create a space in schooling that is liberating, that is affirming for children. And we hope that we continue to be able to do that. Yes, Dr. Gori Muhammad uh, was on the podcast as well. And she talked about her Cultivating Genius book and creating a context for that. And she shared like this, a whole literary um, community of black authors. It was like, she's like, she, she just wanted to highlight like, this is another way of being, another way of seeing it. It's not just uh, literary authors who are white, right? which was the one I've been trained uh, to see through. And I was like, oh, how lovely. Let's move to chapter three, which is about telling stories, which you've both talked about earlier with your own children. So chapter three, uh, I, one of the things that uh, has actually been a large part of our work, and um, I'm actually looking at this, the recent publication right here, right by my side, it's uh, we did a collaboration with Penguin Random House recently, and chapter three really informed that work. It's all about um, using children's books, uh, YA and middle grade as well. Um, and we came up with this way of, of using books in a way that creates many opportunities for children to engage with texts. And we call this reading in community. 
Um, so chapter three was really all about how to develop like this sort of way of reading in a way in a, in a way that engages children's language um, experiences, um, et cetera, right? And so chapter three is about how to use books in a way that really matters. Would you like to talk about that? How do we boost books in ways that really matter? Carla, do you want to? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so for example, we have um, one of the books, and we're constantly quoting this book because we love it so much, Isabel Quintana. Um, Isabel Quintero and Zeke Peña in, in My Papi Has a Motorcycle starts with, Luz, you want to say your favorite line? My Papi Has a Motorcycle. <laughs> yes, let's see. My Papi Has a Motorcycle. From him, I've learned words like carburetor and cariño, drill and dedication. And so that's the first line, right? And so we we love that it engages, uh, well, it, trans languages, right? It has that word cariño and um we just love to talk about like why the author you know choose to write in this way and what it does for the storytelling and that's we you know we take it from there so in a in a typical or traditional approach to you would grab a book and plan a read aloud um in a reading workshop class or you're in a, a character study unit right you plan for using these types of books in those very like english teacher um literacy focused lessons. So, okay, I'm going to use this to look at how a character relationship between the protagonist and their dad or the setting and the importance of that community and the community's changing and how it impacts the, the child and father. Um, so I can, I can do that. And that's beautiful. And I love that picture books are used to teach students about characters and character relationships because that affects our lives, right? So how do I relate to other people? I can use books. Wonderful. In addition to that, we're saying in our reading and community plans is that we want to take that moment for that language awareness. And um, so even moving, chapter three was really the seed for the work that, that informed um, our second book together that we did for Penguin Random House, that handbook for these collections of books that we, we curated for them. Um, and in that handbook, we have language study charts on a bunch of books, kindergarten through 12, um, that yeah, span picture books all through um, young adult novels. And we plan those reading and community um, sessions so we can pause and show students what we're thinking about language and also characters and, and the plot of the book, but also intent, be intentional about studying language. And so we have a chart for, for all these books that we feature in the handbook that are Penguin Random House books where we say, look at this line from the author. It has a word in Spanish. Or we use like Patron, patron Saints of Nothing, one of my favorite young adult novels by um, Randy Ribeye. Um, uh, and it's um, Tagalog in English in some in some spaces, and so I love featuring that. And so we have language study charts with that. Um, it's been so fun. We've been doing a lot of reading in the past year when before that came out um, to make sure we had those language study charts. So chapter three in the Incomunidad book was what set us on this path of making sure we created these language study um, tools for different books that we're using. I guess what you're saying is like there is an intentionality of if of when we use text there's ways so we can make sure that we can hone in on the skills but also let's add the meta uh, metacognitive awareness but the metalinguistic awareness of oh this is the way the author is using this word this is the way the author is using that word look at it from different cultures and look how they're uh, bringing it together and why, right? Why does this matter? And yes, this matters because of the content and because of we're celebrating bilingualism, multilingualism, but also in chapter three, we talk about the transition to writing 
and how these books serve as these examples of, oh, well, Isabel Quintero is doing that. I can do that in my own story too. And so helping students seeing that and how beautiful is that to say, you do this in your home, you do this with friends, you do this in school because this is a part of our entire lives. Sorry, I'm in Times Square in New York City. So I'm at a school in Times Square in New York City. These are the sounds of New York City that you hear in the background. Um, so uh, I just love the, that beauty of, of, of putting those examples front and center in the classroom so students can also see I'm a writer. I'm a bilingual, multilingual writer. I can do this too. Yeah, I think it's, it's just powerful now that there are books that are translanguaging. I, I remember in Vietnamese, I was like, oh my goodness, they're writing in Vietnamese. I'm so shocked. When I grew up in America, coming up through public school and loved my public school, I loved my teachers, but I never saw that kind of representation. So I, I only saw um, uh, th this hierarchy of language where English is the only language that's accepted in the community and everything else is a lesser language and which communicates lesser value and cultural values and that's and now that we're shifting towards that we're really saying let's make space for all languages let's let's destroy let's um de let's take tear down this uh linguistic hierarchy and that's why we want to have bilingual uh, students bilingual families and bilingual schools okay. let's talk about uh, chapter four which is about knowing histories and understanding present moment I can get us started on that, but um, yeah, this is a this is a chapter that you know I'm thinking about like the ways that you know history uh, just informs our experiences, right? And this is sort of what guided what what guided this chapter. And um, Carla, you you were the one that picked a lot of the books that we used in that chapter uh, because of the way that it really celebrated like ancestral knowledge right and we wanted to pay tribute to that right there's so many writers that are writing about that I mean we have Aida Salazar featured right we have I think David Bowles maybe featured in that book right I mean in that chapter and um and it, it was just really important for us to to think about the ways that these authors are bringing this knowledge at the forefront um and the ways that um, colonization, right, has has really, I mean, it's done so much to the cultures, to our languages, to our to everything. And there's so many ways that people remain, right? That people um continue um with their indigenous ancestral practices, despite and perhaps in spite, right, of colonization. And we wanted to show the beauty of that. That was great. I'm yes. <laughs> I mean, Aida, we were we use Aida Salazar's "The Moon Within" in Spanish is "La Luna Dentro de Mi," um, and really, I wrote the teacher's guide to that book because uh, I was just so impacted by it. And and it's given us in our conversations that that and in our planning, it's given us this like wake up call and lens to say, what are the texts out there that will help our students? Um, learn more about histories that haven't been told. Yeah. Um, whether they haven't heard it from their families because all, their families were pressured to assimilate or um, there's just so much trauma that have gone through generations. 
Um, or maybe they're in their schools, there's just a lot of texts um, missing and a lot of perspectives missing. Um, and now we see that uh, in many different spaces uh, around book bans, right? And how books have been banned. There's been censorship of what histories you can teach. Um, so I think we have an immense responsibility as educators to be very intentional with the text that we're choosing and the topics that we're choosing. Um, not only like what I just shared with Rusa about chapter three in our reading and community and helping students as writers and see themselves as bilingual, multilingual writers, but also in our study and understanding of history. Um, so for me, it's been very inspiring um, with Luz to, to see these um, amazing authors, these wonderful bilingual, multilingual authors um, from the um, from populations and, and language minoritized groups that um, are raising these stories and they're amplifying these stories. So we said we have to we have to put this in here. You know, we have to talk about them. Let's talk about your last second to actually your last chapter, which is very close to what you just talked about about the political climate of um, muffling or censoring different narratives in our schools. So how can, be we, how can we be a reader, writer, researcher, and advocate of bilingual Latinx students? There's so many, there's so many ways that we can go about this, right? And I think about uh, the work that has to be done still to make our world like more just, more equitable. And I think we all have our role. And and for us, I mean, and, and for me specifically, I think about my role as a teacher educator and how I can, how I can nurture like our future, like bilingual teaching force or teaching force in general, um, to launch their career as teachers with this in mind, right? With with the positionality that yes, you're going to be their teacher, but you're also going to be like their advocate, right? They're, you're also going to be like so much more. And uh, one thing that we can always do, of course, is be aware of um, of the ways that education um, can impact our lives, right? It's not just like, and I talked about this earlier, like the harm that can be done to children and, and, and institutions, including education, right? It's something that we have to be really well aware of. And how do we create a, a critically conscious teacher um, that thinks about the ideas about how we're perhaps imposing um, and maintaining the status quo through the way that we teach, perhaps, right? And so I think, number one, just being aware of like our surroundings, being aware of how policies um, impact um, the children that we teach, right? Policies like, I mean, like what Carlo already talked about, right? Uh, this censorship or the way that we this this misunderstanding of critical race theory for example um banning books like all of these impact our children um and then bigger laws as well like um language policies um you know whatever educational policies that are very much assessment based and or standardized assessment based like all of these all of these impact our children so one way that we can do so become very aware um, being able to know who to reach out to uh, within the district or within the school or beyond to um, to get support. I think also social media is a really great way to get your voices heard, um, especially you know in this in this age. Um, I don't know, like what do you think, Carlo? How else can we advocate or become advocates? 
I'm, I loved coming up with that list of our thought partners that's in chapter seven at the end of the book. Um, because as we started saying that this is an ongoing journey and part of our critical bilingual literacies approach is your self-reflection on language ideologies, um, we can't do that on our own, right? We don't know it all. We haven't experienced it all. Uh, and just like how one of my research studies uh, teacher, uh, her experience was not the same as the student's experience. As a bilingual person, neither was mine. I came from Chile to the US at age five. And I was in a school that did not have a bilingual program. Um, and then when I did become a teacher my first few years, I was in a bilingual program with students from mostly the Caribbean and Mexico and uh, yeah, and like a few from South America. Our experiences were very different. Our varieties of Spanish were very different and our varieties of English were different. And so we need thought partners. And whether you go to social media or you connect with organizations, uh, whether it's through these podcasts, um, I think that connection is really important so that we always stay alert and say, I might not know about this particular field or this language or this group of students, but I need to learn. And so let me connect with people. When I interviewed Dr. Ophelia Garcia, she said, I asked her, what is something that you're really proud of? And she said, I'm so proud to have passed the torch onto my new scholars. And I'm thinking about you, Dr. España and Dr. Yerira Herrera. Thank you for taking the torch up, leading us along the way, and lighting our path. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for sharing those words. Thank you. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. I want to end this podcast by highlighting the topic text and translanguaging literacy framework in their book. They suggest that we think about the topics that are most relevant to our students and their communities. Another way of thinking about this is looking at the topics that the communities that students are from are grappling with. Text helps us think about the resources we are using to bring these community-based topics into the classroom. They focus on poetry, but we could also use multimodal texts, articles, videos, and interviews, to name a few. And finally, they ask us to think about how we can experience these topics and texts through translanguaging. When we do this, we can truly be en comunidad with our students, their families, and their communities. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.